Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about Datalog, React, and software quality with Nikita Prokopov, the creator of DataScript and RUM. Welcome to the show, Nikita. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to talk with you. So I want to start the show talking about a post you wrote back in 2015, which was pretty widely distributed and talked about, which was about the web after tomorrow, which was, I guess, it was a look at a possible future for web applications where everything was real-time, offline, by default, synchronizing data, lots of uh, you know, really interesting, useful things. So what was kind of the, the impetus for writing about that? Well, I've, I've been building web applications before and uh, like you're just starting to see the inefficiencies and like hard problems that probably needs to be solved. And basically almost with, with the appearance of React and virtual DOM idea, it's kind of easy to build user interfaces and the last thing that's left, I guess, on this frontier is to solve the data synchronization problem. Uh, if you solve that, it will be like trivial to write web applications or any sort of client server applications. Yeah. So one of the one of the technologies you talked about in there was RethinkDB with their change feed queries. And I've had some experience working with that, doing you know data synchronization with real RethinkDB's queries where you can write a, a database query and get the changes streamed to you in real time, not just a single point in time query. So that was, I guess, a very small part of the, the overall picture that you described. Unfortunately, RethinkDB has shut down <laughs> since then. So, you know, it's been three years or so since, since you wrote that post. So what's kind of changed in the landscape since then? Are there new tools that can kind of give you the whole story here, or is it still something you'd need to build you know, yourself from different pieces? I'm not sure if much has changed. I'm not aware of any tools that like completely solve that. Uh, at least I haven't heard about it. So yeah, I think this is still the open question. RethinkDB is is kind of great. I, I, I'd say it was halfway there. Well, the idea is that ultimately what you want is you want a replica of your server-side DB in a browser with with which you can work like offline and it transparently synchronizes to the server. And I I mean, this is, uh, as I imagine it, is this is the right level of abstraction to, to talk such things. Like if you talk about requests, responses, and even live queries or subscriptions, it's a little bit uh, like low level. So you have to do all these uh, motions to get what you want. And there is a lot uh, room for mistake and stuff like that. So ultimately what you want is like a replica of your DB, which synchronizes and you don't know anything about it. But there are like a couple of hard problems to solve. First, how you how to tell which which data you are you interested in, which are, are you not. Uh, the reactive part, so it must push back whatever changes on a server uh, without your knowledge. And probably the conflicts is a serious problem as well. So if somebody changed some stuff and you changed it as well, what should happen? So, well, that, that probably means that we need to 
store our data a little differently, like with more metadata or something like in the model, how we store it and access it probably should change to accommodate for that. I would say that Firebase is probably almost there. I guess they, they split, this is document based DB and they split your data into separate documents. But uh, with each document, you get uh, practically what I'm talking about. You get reactive feed of updates and transparent synchronization. Nice. And latency compensation too. Well, yeah, yeah, it's it, yeah it, it, it works offline as well, yes. Yeah, that's uh, Firebase is, is definitely a, a pretty cool piece of technology. So there's a, a technology that you've been writing since uh, 2014 called DataScript or a library that you've been writing, which I see as you know, potentially a part of this web after tomorrow data synchronization framework. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what, what is DataScript? Yeah, sure. So uh, DataScript is a client-side DB. At least it was created as a client-side DB. So it's like in-memory sync with no persistence. Uh, you just like create it uh, when the page loads, you put data in it, and then you can query it, access data. So the notable thing about DataScript is the, uh, f- from my perspective, is the data log query language that's used there. And so that's very similar to uh, Datomic's query language. Is that, is that that be accurate to say? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it, it supports queries, uh, which are, yeah, are in data log, correct? It's actually, it reproduces the APIs that Datomic have. So basically the queries and other methods are practically the same. Is to try to make them the same. Yeah, but okay, uh, I will now uh, tell you how it relates to the web after tomorrow thing. So the queries actually, they're cool, I guess, for some use cases, but in my practice, I haven't found them all that useful, at least on a client. But what I found useful in DataScript is that it lets your data be stored in a normalized way and access mm-hmm. it in any way you want. So basically, when you put your data in there, you have to split in it into datums, uh, which have like entity ID, attribute, and values. And basically, everything you store there in fl- is flat. And the main benefit, uh, as opposed to something like if you store it in, I don't know, JSON document or something like that. The difference is you don't have to think about access patterns which you will be accessing your data. Uh, you don't have to think about that uh, ahead of time. So basically, you just put data in there and whatever way to access it, uh, you you can do that, right? In JSON, if you put, I don't know, comments inside posts, you only can access comments if you know the post ID not the other way. If you know comment ID, you cannot find out which post it belongs to. So yeah, but in DataScript, you can do that. So you can navigate this database in any direction, basically going from post to comment, from comment to post and stuff like that. And yeah, and do queries as well. So if you need something complex, or for example, if you're building some sort of filter on a, on a client, you can actually generate such a query on, on the fly and, and query the data. As with uh, the web after tomorrow thing, so basically, yeah, it, it's, it's probably was because of my experience with DataScript and Datomic that I started thinking in that regard. 
because like yeah data script is very handy to store data on a client and uh, in Datomic, basically the same data is basically stored in the same way. And the only thing you need, uh, you want them to talk to each other, right? So the right abstraction layer or architectural point when you want your data synchronization is between two databases uh, that can talk to each other. You don't want to do requests on your own. You want your databases to do them for you because they have all the data, all the metadata, and can figure that out. So I haven't really figured out yet how to synchronize uh, data script to Datomic effortlessly. We've been doing that uh, like manually and with custom code and kind of works. Uh, I, I guess everyone who is who is using data script is doing it some way or another. I'd say mm-hmm. it's like it's the old way, but I've been yeah I've been dreaming of a way in Web after tomorrow. Uh, style when you can just plug it in and tell data script i need these documents and please give them to me and you will have what's on your server in the atomic on the client completely transparently yeah so the different ways that you could synchronize that data would be to request sort of the entities in a more let's say rest style query and then insert them into to your data script database or you could just request the the datums directly from Datomic. Uh, are those kind of the main main ways you'd get data into DataScript. Yeah, and the nice thing about well DataScript, why I even started doing about that in Datomic, is because it it has well sort of lots of metadata, right? So Datomic, uh, especially, is very pedantic about uh, how data is changing. It has like it records transaction IDs. It records every transaction, every every change is uh, like materialized. It's in a data form. Mm-hmm. Every transaction has like data representation, and a data script as well. So you have all the data, and with all it's all like unique. It has unique IDs and stuff like that. It's practically immutable. And basically, all you need is some uh, technologies that will communicate that over the network, sent it back and forth with some retries and error handling, maybe, and you will have it. Yeah. So the challenging part there seems to be not getting the transaction log because you can just get a, a feed of that, but figuring out which parts of that transaction log to send to which client. Is that where the main difficulty is? Yeah, 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 I would say it is. We actually, uh, when I work in Cognition, we build document editor. And uh, for that specific task, it was kind of easy to solve the problem because uh, when you get, it's well, uh, it's like an editor, like Google Docs, for but for diagrams, right? And it had, uh, it should have had this multiplayer uh, functionality when multiple users work on the same document at the same time. So with that, it's, it was basically easy because you have single document and everyone is looking at it. So basically, any datum that relates to this document, you just send it to every client. And in interaction, if you see that something changed that relates to the same document, basically the single ID, all you have to check. Uh, you send it to all of the clients, basically broadcast. So in that particular case, it was kind of easy to solve and we get this multiplayer quite easily. And I guess uh, everyone was happy how it turned out because 
you do, you don't have to do anything. You just do basic transactions on a client and you see them replicated to every other browser connected. Nice. So there was just a single uh, entity ID per document. Is that right? No, not, 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 not exactly like that. There was multiple entities, but they all have like direct link reference to the my document ID for simplicity. Right. I see. Nice. Um, so, so there's another project you're quite well known for in the Clojure uh, ecosystem, which is uh, RUM, which is a React, you call it a React, React wrapper, um, React library, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure. And so, you know, RUM, there's, there's many, many different uh, libraries that do, you know, React in, in Clojure script. But I think one of the things that's quite interesting about RUM uh, that's quite different from the others that I've seen is how deconstructed it is that you know rum itself kind of gives you a little bit of stuff and you can kind of build your own uh, custom react framework by by using the mixins so what was kind of the the thought process behind mixins and rum in general yeah so it all actually started with the need to use data script as a storage because at the moment, none of the frameworks that existed for ClojureScript uh, couldn't support custom storages. And I, I wanted to use DataScript. And as it turned out, well, because I didn't want to write frameworks specifically for DataScript, so it, it, it had to be like for any storage. So basically, I left storage um, out of the question. So RAM is storage agnostic. You can use whatever storage there is. Yeah, and, and I, I don't like to write like lots of code and I don't have big ideas about how framework, uh, UI framework should work for you. So basically, yeah, I just uh, tried to make as little decisions as possible. So it's really thin wrapper, but then, yeah, you, I, I just, uh, it's basically, but it's very hackable. So you can write whatever you want. You can invent any scheme to update your user interface you want. And uh, to my knowledge, yeah, basically with mixins. Mixins, I, I don't even remember how I decided on them. It was basically probably copying the React, uh, how React does it, but it turned out pretty well. So it's 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 pretty usable and pretty powerful, I'd say. And I know people building different uh, like plugins from or access patterns. I heard somebody is using it for actually run reactive data script or something like that. So they listen for entities in data script and whatever particular entity changes, they can figure out which components it uh, like relates to, which components depend on it and update them reactively. So basically do not re-render the whole application by just particular components that only was known to access particular entity. So you can do whatever you want with, with that, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm probably most familiar with Reagent um, in that set of React frameworks, and it looked like sort of RUM gives you the same the ability to do some of the things that Reagent does for you by default, like reactive data and the, the comparison checking for the arguments. Um, but I guess the benefit of the mix and approach is that you can be more custom and specific to your your domain model and maybe faster. Um, in some cases, I'm, I'm not sure about faster. I haven't actually measured it, uh, but 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 yeah, you, you, you're right. So I, I actually ship 
uh, well, the idea of RAM when, when I was like first uh, writing it, the idea was that I will take every idea that OM has and Reagent has and Vicent <laughs> had, and I will make them as a mixins available for you in RAM. So basically, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, batteries included would like you. You can make your your own OM uh, with RAM, or you can make your own reagent. I I wouldn't decide for you, but I have all the batteries with whatever you like. <laughs> and uh, an interesting uh, feature of RAM is that it's uh, isomorphic, which is you know a, a bit of a buzzword at the moment, but uh, means I guess you can run the same code on the the client and the server, um, and and not just on yeah, a, a Node.js server, but you can run it in the JVM as well, can't you? Yeah, yeah, that, that was... Uh, well, it was surprising that it was possible, but yeah, we made it possible. I guess Alexander Solovyov started the work and I finished it. And now, yeah, you can you can run actually the same components on a JVM, on a closure, without React or JS or whatever client-side uses. So what would be a, a use case for running that in the JVM? Well, yeah, uh, so basically it does uh, the same stuff that a React server side renderer does on Node.js. So basically you you serve a ready page, uh, like populated page with all the components rendered from the server. So the browser can display that immediately. And then mm-hmm. when React initialize, it can uh, catch up to this markup, to existing markup, and just start working from there, not create it from scratch. The second use case, when you can just use it to static side generation, uh, like uh, like you would use Hiccup, uh, but basically the same. You can just generate static sites with like static pages with RAM instead of Hiccup, for example. That's really cool. So, so the React uh, virtual DOM can take your DOM elements that have already been rendered by the browser and diff against them to kind of get a no change and start tracking everything without any kind of flash of white as it all re-renders. Is that is that right? Yeah, it, it, it's how it works. Yes, it actually nice. uh, well get uh, got us a little bit of work to do. Because especially in earlier versions of React, you had to have exactly the same markup, basically up to the white space. It couldn't differ (laughs) even in white space because it calculated checksum of the the strings that we generated and the checksum had to match. Uh, Later, they they had like IDs on every element. So we have to reproduce all that uh, machinery. Later they removed that, and I guess right now it's just plain HTML, almost plain HTML, so it's much easier now. All right, so I've been following you uh, for a while, and you've been talking a little bit about your work at uh, Cognition, uh, who you've been contracting, is it contracting for them or an employee? Yeah, contracting. Right, and so it sounded like you've had the chance to sort of put some of these ideas and uh, libraries into practice. So can you kind of talk a bit more? You mentioned the document editor with uh, DataScript. Um, and are you, were you able to use RUM there as well? Yeah, we, we used RUM and DataScript. Uh, they, were, they were quite open. The CTO, Robert Sutherford, uh, he was quite open to letting me try the stuff that I wanted to. So basically, the... 
the first project that I did for them was this uh, chat thing where you basically, well, Cognition is a sort of coaching platform where you coach people trying to get some knowledge into their heads. And we do that mm-hmm. by producing these interactive chats where people kind of read some materials and try to like place not not a game but like answer some questions in text form or in some choose one choose many something like that. So it's kind of interactive thing, and we believe that it it helps to to rem- you to remember that knowledge better or something like that. So that, that was the stuff that I built for them using the data script and RAM. And I actually, by doing that, I, I, I believe I quite improved both uh, in the process because like when you have a real use case and you see what's really needed and you see problems and you can fix the sources of the libraries that, that gets you the problem. So it's it's actually a good thing for, for this project. Yeah, and we built uh, quite interesting technologies there. So we used event sourcing, and we had like data script on a client, Datomic on a server, and we basically synchronized these events. And we built um, that uh, log offline, offline mode, basically, so the chat could work offline. If for some reason server server was unavailable, we just persisted to local storage, and when the connection got back up, we synchronized it to Datomic, and basically, I, I, I believe it saved us a couple of times when we the server, but nobody of <laughs> our clients. Yeah, not to say anything because they just continued to work and doing the tests, and it was just all transparent seamlessly, and it worked quite well, quite reliably. So we got all the data back. It was it was interesting. Uh, and in the second project is was that as a document editor uh, where I kind of wanted to generalize this idea and get away a little bit from event sourcing, which is kind of a pain a little bit. Well, not a pain, but it, it requires certain discipline, I guess, uh, because basically you record everything that happens uh, as an event, right? And in the future... Yeah. All these all this events are persisted in a database, so you kind of cannot change format after the fact or remove some events. You can add new ones, but they have to be compatible with old ones as well. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to generalize that and basically connect Datomic directly to the data script without uh, hoops around events. Yeah, I, I, I haven't quite finished that work yet because, well, there's like problems with subscriptions and conflict and they're kind of hard problems to solve. And if I ever figure out how to do that, I will probably publish a library that does it. <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be uh, very welcome, I'm sure. Yeah, but but even without that, like the, the document editor we built was quite working. It was functionable. It was easy to program to. Basically, the, all the complexity went into data model, how you represent the data. And the, the UI itself, like how you render the UI, how you like render the fields and work with them. After that, you basically store everything in data script and it, it gets synchronized. Nice. So what's your background um, before you wrote these uh, you know, libraries and software? Um, have you always been a software developer? Um, sort of where, where did you come from uh, in that sense? Yeah, I've been a software developer all my life, so it's uh, the only occupation I have. 
Um, yeah, so my 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 first language was Java, and I I kind of got tired of the not the language probably but the ecosystem there after five or six years, and I wanted to switch to something, so I got into Erlang, and then mm-hmm. I discovered Clojure, and uh, it's been Clojure ever since. Nice, good choice. Um... Yeah, I'm happy with it. <laughs> so so the other thing that I really enjoy um, following you is your thoughts on software development, uh, particularly software quality, software size, uh, that that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, you, you recently wrote a pretty, I didn't find it very controversial, but some people seemed to, a, a post about software disenchantment, which was sort of talking about lack of efficiency and simplicity. So can you talk a little bit about what that was about and what you were trying to get across to people? I'm not sure why, but I get quite annoyed uh, by computers in general. <laughs> I, I guess, I, I, okay, so I, I probably have, I, I even probably know the reason why. So um, early in my career, like uh, when I was uh, like disillusioned with Java, I was even thinking about switching careers and I got interested in the UI and UX stuff, user interfaces and design and stuff like that. I wrote, uh, read these uh, books about um, design of everyday things, uh, computer interface by Jeff Rusk and stuff like that about face. Uh, uh, this is like uh, foundational books for UX. And the thing it does to you uh, in that regard, it basically shows you how terribly crazy computers are, how how bad, well, not, not only computers, but many interfaces around you, how badly designed they are. Like Dan Norman opens his uh, design of everyday things with an example, like I often cannot understand which way to pull the door, uh, or pu- should I pull the door or push the door? And I think that's the problem with the door design. And like people were like, "What? What? What's the problem, man? You have problem with doors? How can it be like <laughs> nobody like noticed that?" But but he noticed. And basically, what what these books da- do to you is uh, you start to notice these things as well, especially in computers, right? And when, yeah, when you see all this, like, problems, inefficiencies, and uh, stuff like that, and you constantly annoyed about them, uh, well, yeah, it's, it's it's probably not good for mental health. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but, but it's, I guess it's good if you want to design something yourself, so I, I kind of know what not to do, at least try not to do. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I, I even started at some point, like, the, the stream of these annoyances was, like, never ending, and I needed a place where I can put them so I can get them out of my head. And I started uh, the Grumpy website with a couple <laughs> of friends, where basically we, like, uh, talk about bad interfaces and mistakes in interfaces. I hope it's not just like pointless whining. I hope that if you read this, you can actually start to see the things and understand how to fix them. Probably and maybe we'll have a little better computers after the fact. But then it all got transferred to the software as well. I mean, engineering part inside, how it's made. You can not notice that as well if you're working in programming, uh, probably. 
so it, it really bothers me as well how bloated everything is, how inefficient it is. Because like everyone, well, like business doesn't need software to be efficient, right? And doesn't need it to be like perfectly written. It just needs to sell, basically. If it sells, uh, it doesn't matter how it was written and how bad it is. Like, uh, And there's tons of examples of that as well. So I started to collect those examples um, at some point, And yeah, it, it all turned out into a web post, which I didn't really had uh, like a particular point in mind when I wrote this. I just needed to get it out of myself, I guess, so I can make peace with it. But what it did, at least for me, is that I found... I probably understand about myself that, yeah, I, I am annoyed by those things. And I probably want in my career to, to switch to something that that is uh, like uh, made uh, with quality and uh, basically properly made, right? So not, not some stuff slapped together on top of some other stuff like Electron app <laughs> with JS framework, with stuff like that, when, well, basically the same thing can be achieved with, I don't know, very efficient drawing library or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I haven't solved that problem yet, as I'm looking for probably <laughs> ideas here uh, where I can work on, like, efficient and... Uh, perfectly made uh, software. I know there is some, right? There is there are some attempts to build such software, like, for example, Sublime Text, right? Sublime Text Editor. Uh, I guess there is one guy writing it or something like that. Not not, not a big company, but he, mm, like, yeah. he, wrote, he wrote his own UI uh, framework or something like that in C++, I guess, and then he wrote the editor that, that works nice. It works well. It's it's great editor. It's very smooth. It's uh, reliable. It's efficient and stuff like that. So it can be made, right? But then, but then uh, GitHub people wrote Ad Atom, which was based on JS and Electron, and you basically run a new browser each time you start the editor, and it, it got more popular, I guess, because it's simpler to write plugins for it. But still, Sublime, I guess, has its uses, and I hope. I hope to build something similar in the future. Yeah. Another thing you mentioned in the post was Jonathan Blow's uh, Jai language. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it, which is he's made a, a big focus on compile speed. I've been following along with that for quite a while. And it seems like he, he comes from a similar school of thought to you about efficiency and performance, which you know I, I really appreciate. Yeah, the Jai, Jai language is, is really impressive. Because it compiles to native code basically like 500,000 lines in a second or something like that. And it really makes you question like, why can't other software be like that? And <laughs> like, like really, really question. So, so if, if it didn't exist, I would probably be much more at peace with current state of software. But then you see like how Clojure needs a second just to boot, right? And uh, a second, I don't know. more, yeah, more a than second. a second, um, more than a second for well, I guess closure by itself maybe is a second, yeah. It's, but... it's just like closure without any libraries. And then, I, yeah, actually, uh, at some point, they started to measure how long different libraries take, and 
Like cider, if I remember correctly, it takes about four seconds. If you add cider to closure project, it adds up four seconds to the uh, to the boot time. So basically, you don't do anything yet. You just like just load it up. It, it doesn't have any sources to scan, I guess, or I don't know what it does. But it just maybe it's just lots of code or something like that. The atomic adds one second, I guess, as well. So in cognition, our project was booting for. 20 to 40 seconds, I guess. There are two projects. One would put it in 20 seconds, another one in 40 seconds. It's just native closure. It's not closure script. Just uh, all the libraries that are there take a certain amount of time. And that's crazy. It's crazy. It's, I guess if closure was designed with the goal to be efficient and at boot up speed or compilation speed, it could be much better, but that wasn't the goal. So we get what what just happened to be the speed. Yeah, and that's a shame. Like it, it kind of I guess limits the reach of uh, of where closure can go with that startup time. I've heard from heard from some people recently who you know left closure and moved to F sharp because of that compile time. It was just too slow for whatever they were needing to do, which is yeah. I guess the the Graal compiler. Maybe that's that's going to be possible future for fast startup, but Graal itself takes quite a while to to do that compiling as well. So yeah, there is actually a good example of what I called this, like uh, what I was uh, calling out in this article, because kind of well, yeah, uh, the Graal is is kind of a solution to deal with what we have right now, right? It's it's not a solution designed for, from the ground up, so it's not the most efficient one. So basically, it, it, what it does is like, okay, we have like this Java code base. Uh, can we do something on top of that that will make it faster, right? It doesn't ask you if if you can build fast software. It, it, it asks if you can take this inefficient software that we already have and make it slightly more efficient. <laughs> we, we, which is well, it's it's kind of incremental, uh, but uh, I'm not sure that adding more stuff is the way to go. The same way is Docker is probably a step in the wrong direction because you just put Linux inside other Linux instead of like simplifying the Linux you already have or something like the kernel you already have. And then we have the same problem with JavaScript as well, right? So browser vendors are struggling with the problem of taking this really inefficient language that wasn't designed for speed at all and trying to make at least what, what's possible to be made there. So it's it's a trivial problem. I mean, if, if we were to design it from scratch, it would be like 10 times faster. It could be C-like speed, but instead we are stuck with what we have and like... We have all this slow website, slow web application just because of nobody can replace it. Yeah. Do you see WebAssembly as being a way forward for that? Or is it also just the the browser and DOM APIs that limit the performance there? I, I think that it should be okay in the regard to the speed. But yeah, the DOM API will probably still be a problem if you are going to use the DOM. Well, the DOM is kind of yeah a, a pile of crap as well because like it's it's backwards compatible with whatever was written before like ten years or fifteen years how long the internet existed and yeah you cannot remove stuff from there so it's just getting more and more complex 
Um, it's basically, well, uh, the way I see it is the browser offers you too much at once. Like you can, well, it's great for easy start, like uh, learning curve. You can you can get a lot done, like the simplest stuff. But when you get more experienced and when you need to some stuff to be done in exact particular way, you cannot uh, take away stuff from the browser. You cannot move to a lower level level and like draw rectangles or do layout for yourself. You have you still have to work around this top-level API on the browser. So browser kind of is a way high level without any way to be low level. So that's 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 not the most perfect place to be. Yeah. So uh, you left uh, Cognition a couple of months ago. Uh, and so what have you been doing since then? I, I worked uh, briefly for the Minsk company called Target Process. I will be building um, this uh, project management software, uh, but but then I, I took a little bit of vacation because uh, <laughs> kind of personal reasons because I, I got tired actually from I don't know for programming. Uh, I, I, you, you you can say overburned or something like that. I guess so I I've, I've, I took three months vacation after that, and I'm not right now in that vacation. So have you been able to stay away from programming in that vacation then? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but, but basically it, it started with me like um, coming Monday, I, I realized that I can, just cannot make myself sit at the computer and do anything. So it's, it, it basically was like uh, inner reaction from my organism that please don't do that to me. And so, yeah, I, I just had to back off and... Yeah, stay away from from programming at all. Yeah, well, that's uh, yeah, it's, it's great that you're able to take some time off. And um, I saw that you've uh, recently set up a Patreon um, to support some of the open source work that you're doing. Uh, so if if anyone uh, you know finds uh, finds your work useful, uh, you know, I'd really recommend they support you there. Yeah, I, I, I can say a couple of words about Patreon as well. Yeah. So, so yeah, basically by the end of uh, that vacation, I got like bored, right? And I still, I still <laughs> want to, <laughs> to do stuff. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I like, uh, discovered my own projects that like before that they were in like kind of not really supported state. So I didn't have time to work on them. It's really hard to do that when you have day job, actually. And yeah, so so the idea was that if I can buy a little time off my day job, I, I still need money like to to live. Uh, if I can buy a little bit time off the day job and cover it with some other sources of income, I can work at least a couple of days a month on those projects. And even a couple of days a month would be a lot. At least I can support like close tickets and uh, issues. Maybe not develop new things, but at least uh, support people who are using them. Right? There are still people who are using DataScript and RAM. They're in, in a perfect uh, shape. I mean, they're usable. They're kind of feature complete, I guess. Uh, but there is always more stuff to do. So yeah, I set up a Patreon and people were genius, very generous with, with it. And I got a lot of supporters and I hope to 
to start working. Well, actually, I am planning for this week to start working on on Fira code and maybe some closure projects. Nice. So you've kind of finished your vacation away from the computer, um, coming back to the computer now? Yeah, yeah, I got, um, yeah. I feel that I, I already uh, want to go back. Yeah, I, I know the feeling of, of needing some time time away. I've definitely had that uh, <laughs> several times. And so what else have you got uh, coming up uh, since you've uh, finished your vacation? I have a little gig with my friend uh, to work on his his project, on a source project. It's it's called Swarm Jazz. If you if you heard about it, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's uh, it's in, in in similar field like synchronization, data synchronization, and stuff like that. A little bit from a different side. So it's basically a mathematical solution to that synchronization problem. That that prob guarantees you that whatever your uh, synchronization logic is, you will get all your data in a perfect shape anyway. So it basically solves all the conflict you have for you. So we, we are trying to turn that into a shippable product. Great. Yeah, so that's using uh, conflict-free replicated data types or CRDTs. Yeah, I've looked at Swarm.js a year or two ago. I was quite interested in CRDTs for some work stuff that I was yeah, considering different different strategies for this synchronization problem and and swarm was you know one of the one of the options we looked at um so yeah that that'll be really cool to see that um turned into a commercial commercial product um it's, it's a great library yeah so how can people find you if they want to follow on along with with what you're doing yeah i have a twitter and uh, it's nikitonsky uh, you can find me. I have email as well. Uh, so I, I have site uh, website which is uh, tonski.me, and mm-hmm. uh, all the contacts are there. Yes. Great. Yeah, and there's also the Patreon. I'll add a link to that, um, so people can find yeah. find you on Patreon too. So uh, before we finish up, is there anything else you'd like to plug or mention? No, I don't know. I have uh, okay. Uh, so the, it's it's on Patreon as well. So I guess I just mentioned it. I, I'm also an author of the very popular font for programming, which is Fira Code. People seem to really really love it. So if you're looking for a font, try this out. It, it has ligatures, so it makes every code uh, kind of more prettier to look at, especially closure. So there's lots of ligature for closure. So try it out. Nice, yeah. So that um, those ligatures, do they still they take up the same width as the the characters that they are replacing? Is that correct? Yeah. So basically, how it works is if you type dash and then greater than sign, well, like C plus plus uh, pointer access, right? So it it looks like an arrow. So what my phone does is basically visually it replaces it uh, with a visual arrow of the same width. So your like indentation will stay the same, uh, and this is uh, just the visual feature. So underlying text is still what it, what you typed in. So we don't change that at all. So it just uh, the representation. You're just looking at a more beautiful thing, but it is saved and interpreted by I don't know compilers the same way. So it's win-win on all fronts. Yeah, and. Uh- How's it supported in editors? Have they handled these ligatures very well? Because most of them would be more used to 
monospaced fonts or certainly tested more with monospaced fonts. Yeah, so the story with editors, it actually, I guess it, it started with my font or something like that. Uh, so my font wasn't first. The first one was Hasclick, which was uh, source code pro, I guess, adapted to the Haskell ligatures. So I got idea mm-hmm. from there, but mine got kind of uh, very popular. And then editors uh, started feeling the pressure of support those ligatures. <laughs> so no, no, it, it, what happened? And yeah, and at this moment, all web-based editors support them, like Visual Studio Code and uh, Atom support them. I guess Sublime 3 added the support. IntelliJ in all those editors, they added the support as well. We've worked with them pretty closely. And uh, the the only editor which story is not that great is Emacs. Uh, There is a workaround there. I guess based on Emacs Lisp or something like that, which I mm-hmm. I do not um, wrote. So this uh, community wrote this uh, snippets to support it. Maybe in a future version, I will have something to make this support a little bit better and a little bit more official. But it's kind of tricky for Emacs because it's so old. It's yeah, yeah. Uh, but but it's usable. What, I, I just I just want to say you can make it work. So try it out, anyways. Right. There is there are solutions on the website. And what do you use as your daily editor? Uh, it's uh, Visual Studio Code for now. Uh huh. Nice. And with Closure plugins for for Closure. Yeah, there is. Uh, so I used uh, two plugins. One was I, I don't. Remember the name, like Closure something, I guess, from Andrei Lysin, who mm-hmm. I actually met here in Moscow. And the other one is Calva, uh, the, mm-hmm. the newer yeah. one. And they have this inline re- result uh, display. So I like that. So I'm right now on this one. It's right. not perfect. It's, it's kind of, uh, I, I'd say it's half there, I guess, in terms of usability and nice to use, but you can make it work and you can work with REPL and it's all that matters for Closure, I guess. Nice. Well, I'm going to be following along closely with your blog and Twitter feed and all of these really cool projects that you've been doing. Thanks for creating them and sharing them with us. Um, Yeah, really appreciate it. Cool. Thank you.